Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest wants to be a good guy, but we live in a tough world. Joseph Reed, welcome. Oh my gosh. So I have to talk about the beginning of your book where you mention <laughs> going to a mental institution and seeing somebody's finger get bit off. Right. <laughs> I didn't see his finger get cut off. I heard it and I was right outside the door. Like I was right outside my door where it got, and I heard it get spit. <laughs> that little sound was awful. Yeah, but I was I was bracing my door because the nurses were yelling at me to get back inside, but they ended up needing us. So my roommate went and helped. That is completely terrifying. Did yeah. you rethink your decision at that point? About being at the mental hospital? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I didn't go to one for another 12 years it was because I didn't, I thought that's how they all were. And of course, it was a different time in 2001. The way they treated people was a lot different. So when I went back in 2012, it was a much better experience. I feel like mental health in general has changed so much in that time period. Yeah. The major differences right off the bat was, you know, medication was the solution back in 2001. I remember sitting down with uh, the psychiatrist. He never even looked at me and he just had me talked and he was writing things down. And I think when he handed me the, the prescription, he looked at me, but I'm not certain. And it was just very impersonal. I lost track of an entire week while I was in there. Whereas when I went to the hospital in 2012, it was very much this dance between, hey, we understand that one of the big problems you have is just kind of knowing how to function in society. So here are some tools so that you can be more engaging in society, engaging in community without feeling so weird and awkward. Because that weird and awkward feeling just contributes to that struggle with the internal battle, which is kind of like a, a sidebar of the mental illness. What's interesting is that you have formed a Facebook community, and I have yep. seen some of the posts in there of people really opening up and sharing what they're going through in there. Yeah. How does that make you feel, like, seeing some of those posts? I'm so blessed. Like, I just, to see that we've created a platform for people to come and openly share where they are understood, where there are other broken people who get it. And it's not all, all mental illness. It's people that have been abused by other spouses. But the whole idea is connecting these people that feel broken. And, and I, think it's, I think it's both beautiful and tragic to, to know that there are people that struggle. That's the title of my book, people that struggle like me, people that feel broken like me. You know, I'm one of those people that gets on there. Again, we have people... One of the most common ones recently is a lady from Strasbourg, Germany. And because of the internet, we're actually able to support her and help her find resources, you know, just outside of Berlin and have. So I feel blessed. I feel ecstatic that there's purpose in my pain because that's one of the hardest things is for me to think, is this all for nothing? And it's not, it's not all for nothing. There's, I think each one of us can use our, our pain points to help others. And that's what I'm trying to do. I got a journal yesterday in your honor because the, 
the story of you talking about like how much journaling has helped you. I'm like, I need more journals in my life. Like I need to be committed to yeah. journaling. Yeah. In the book, I talk about the rules of journaling. You don't have to journal every day. There, there are no rules. Throw every rule out. People can look at your journals if you want them to. I just, my journal literally today, I went grocery shopping. My journal has a list of my groceries in it. I make tons of lists in my journal and that's, that works for me. I'm really glad. It's also important if you got, if you found a journal that you like, hopefully you like it and it appeals to you to look, but a good pen too is, is so important. And I recommend the G2 Pilot 0.07. It's, it's my favorite pen. It's, it's a pleasure to write with, but finding one that makes you feel like a princess, you know, or, or whatever, it's just, I love it. So picking up the pen and, and I, I have 26 journals right now and they're all different. I feel differently when I, when I go buy a journal and I want one that appeals to me in that, in that situation. Wow, that's so interesting. I think you need an affiliate link for that pin that you keep mentioning because the amount of times that you've mentioned it, they should like compensate you. <laughs> yeah, you know, wow. My kids have said that and we treat pilot pens as currency in my house. Another part of your story that really spoke to me is in the beginning when you mentioned that your daughter, she wrote kind of the foreword. Yes. And she talked about understanding you because she also struggles as well yes that really hit me yeah most people that know her couldn't make that past that part without crying so i have four children two girls and two boys you know for them to to be making it through their own struggles you know it's an honor to be partnering with them and yeah it makes me sad but then you know through each one of their stories and struggles you know i continue to learn and i continue to use my struggles both in my community and in my home to be able to help where I can, you know? I think there's a lot of times where people, they want to make a name for themselves or they want to make money or so they push their story on people. They try to push what they're capable of. And me, I'm just trying to help somebody, you know? Sometimes it's my kids. Sometimes it's all I can do is help myself, but it's what we do. Talk to me about when you're in a really dark place, how do you consistently take little baby steps forward to get out of an abusive situation? It's different from how I do it and how I do it in a community. Like I have a little bit more responsibility and power myself for my community. You know, we make sure that everyone understands that we're not therapists. We are people that struggle alongside you and, and hope that to share stories and experiences, but we'll always encourage you to take your medication. I always encourage you to listen to your therapist and your doctor. But for me, you know, when I'm lying in bed, you know, over the course of the weekend, I just think, you know, you know, I didn't talk a lot about my book about my, my fascination with turtles. But there's this idea that forward is forward, speed doesn't matter. And sometimes when you're in a situation where you're facing an emotional storm, it's okay to hide in your shell until it's safe to come out. And that's kind of what I do. Like I realize I give myself some grace when I'm in those tough spots that, that it's okay to hide a little bit, but realizing I'm not going to be there for long. And, you know, you probably, I don't know if you've gotten to the part where it talks about friendship, but having people that both understand my mental health scale which is part of what I'm going to be talking about at the conference this weekend or this week and are accountable and that check in on me. They're having this, this tight group of friendship, which I refer to as intentional best friends. And my wife who understands this, you know, having a scale where it's universal and I can just say something really tiny to explain a ton of stuff. It, it actually saved somebody's life last week. And, and for me, when I'm in that place where I am internalizing and struggling and wanting to die and, and feeling completely worthless, not being able to tell my wife or my friends all the thoughts and the crap that, and the mess 
that's going through my brain, but just to give them a number to simplify until I'm able to maybe more explain it really is just a gift. As somebody that's really been learning and, and, and continue to learn through my mental illness, starting in second grade all the way to I'm 45 now, you know, and giving that grace after that grace period is done. And I, you know, I literally just kind of do this thing where I push my finger, you know, I just kind of move my finger. I start moving small joints of my body. And then I slowly and surely it's going to get where I can turn and sit up in bed. And then, and then I kind of celebrate those small wins. And that's what's another thing that's really great about the mental health scale was when you're, and I don't think we have time to go into what it means, but if you get the yeah, book, yeah. It's, it's pretty. I actually did get to that point in your book. And I was like, wow, that's amazing that you're able to yeah. explain that scale where other people that are going through that can understand it and, and rate themselves in a way that hasn't been mentioned before because other yeah. scales might not work. So it's amazing that you came up with that. Yeah, and if we can get everybody speaking the same language, the professionals, the police police officers, I work with training police officers here in West Michigan to learn you know, how to de-escalate more effectively when faced with a mental health crisis. So that's kind of a new thing. I'm learning to share my story with them. I'm a graduate from Flint Police Academy, which if, if you're familiar with the Flint water crisis, that's where I went to the police academy. I graduated oh, third wow. in my class. You know, I have that, I use that experience to relate to officers and to, yeah, just try to help where I can. Wow. So tell me about this conference that you're getting ready to speak at. Yeah. So this is really interesting. It's, it's NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I'm in a way, if, you're, if anybody is in NAMI, Michigan, listening to this, you're going to find out what I'm going to do, but I'm going to hijack the conference just a little bit. I'm not a paid speaker. I have a vendor table, but I'm going to have people sign up so that I can have like an impromptu session about the mental health scale. So whoever signs up, I got a little Starbucks gift basket. I'm going to kind of raffle off and, and just try to get, you know, a few people around us to talk about this idea. And these are all leaders in Michigan of, of mental health. If I can get this idea in people's heads that there's a better way to talk about this, there's a better way to communicate how we're doing, that feels like a win. And, and it's always a conversation with me. It's, yeah, I just feel like it's better. It's better for me. And I, I've been round and round with therapists and, you know, part of developing this has, has come from, you know, small group discussions where I've asked for help from people to challenge me. This is something I just did for me. This is something I invented years and years ago because I needed to be able to communicate with people that I love that when I'm okay and when I'm struggling, not to write a book. It's not anything I intended to do. It wasn't until, you know, tragedy struck that I was like, okay, I'm going to do something more public. Tell me about <laughs> when tragedy struck. In 2016, I went to an organizational developer in West Michigan. He was a doctor. He's a smart guy, Andy Atwood. He used to work for the state. And what his job is essentially is to help organizations and people determine their gifts and help them figure out where that's going to take them. And I was just going back to college to get my bachelor's degree about that time. I was 35 or 36. And I went to him and I said, hey, these are all the things I'm doing. I, I've, got a, I've got a scale I use. I've got this unique way I do friendship. I journal. I do this exercise thing, which is my next book coming out. And I was like, what do I do with this? You know, like, I thought I was going to go into business because when you don't know what you're going to do, you're going to go into business, I guess. I don't know. And he's just like, I have no idea what you're going to do. But, you know, it seems like to me that you're waiting for a big event, a catalyst to push you in a specific direction. I just kind of forgot about that conversation for a couple of years. And until January 25th, 2018, when I received a phone call that my best friend had taken his life. And then I was in my FedEx truck, not far from where I am right now in, in central Michigan, and got the call in that that conversation with Dr. Atwood came back to me. That was the catalyst that was going to determine the direction of the rest of my life. 
I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, but I was really pissed off and I needed to do something. And I was, I was willing to take whatever risks uh, because it was hard losing a friend, you know, a good friend like that. I'm so sorry about that. Oh my God. I cannot imagine. Yeah. But unfortunately a lot of people can't imagine. And that's, that's unfortunate. And that's one thing we're trying to help with, right? I mean, you having conversations like this is you're trying to help people be more open. You're creating a platform for people to come in and take these things that are typically hidden in the dark corners of society and making them a little bit more a part of a conversation and in social settings and that and I applaud you for that. Thank you. I'm trying. Yeah, I have definitely uncovered a lot. Tell me about some of the risks that you took after that. Yeah, it was really interesting because 2018, I had been doing theme years from 2016 to 2018. And 2016 was healthy, healthy, healthy. I was just going to get myself healthy because I knew I couldn't make any big changes if I wasn't a healthier person. Well, 2018 was my risk year. And I had created this kind of a vision board. And all it was a piece of cardboard where I drew little bricks on it. So it looked like a brick wall. And I have four areas of my life that are the priorities of my life. It's God, health, family, and Joe. And that's another thing I do when I'm in a tragic place is I list those things out and like, what kind of, what is something small I can do to add value or to grow in one of those areas in my life every day or whenever I need to. So on this board, this cardboard, I, I wrote those as part of the bricks. And then my goal for 2018 was to fill up every one of those bricks with a risk that I took. One of them was I sang on my church worship team. And one day I just showed up with my harmonica and I just pulled up my harmonica and nobody expected it. <laughs> I didn't know my friend was going to die and he died. And then it was like, I'm going to start writing a book. That's a big risk. And I filled up all of them. It was, it was pretty crazy, but I don't even know if I answered your question, but. What did that yeah, risk- do for you being a risk taker and actually like putting those things down, pen to paper, like that is so cool. There's this idea that, you know, when somebody is struggling, whether it be with an addiction or something that, that you can snowball. Well, John Maxwell, who's a leader in his leadership development, he suggested that success is similar. Like you, if you take small risk and you have these small wins, that's part of dialectical behavior therapy too, where you just can build upon these wins. So I started developing more courage when more risks I took. The wins became like I was getting used to celebrating and I was getting used to winning and I was getting used to accomplishing things. And it just felt good to say, I'm going to do something and then do it. Sometimes it was just really, really small. Like I, I think I went in wilderness camping with one of my kids, you know, where I'd never done that before. No electricity, no toilet. Yeah, I was just going to take a risk. I'm going to go do it. It just, it, it helped me build confidence that I was capable of a lot more than I thought I was. There are some risks that you need to be aware of and, and you don't need to take, but I'm not talking about those. You know, it, it, one of the things I, I talk about with my, my kids so frequently is, you know, how we address fear. Like some things you need to be afraid of, afraid of because they're dangerous for you. But then otherwise, most often when we're afraid, which is most com- the most common fear is this rational fear, then I just close my eyes and put my head down and just drive into it. A lot of times fear is a really great indication of what you should be doing. So when I get afraid, if my life isn't at risk, when I get afraid, a little flag goes up in my head. Maybe this is something you should do. And then I do it. <laughs> and most often I do it. And, you know, publishing a book, that was really scary. Starting an international organization, it's scary. I did, I did start it, it became that, but I didn't start it that way. And going to the gym was another thing, just, just bulking up, like 
exercise is so helpful for my mental health. It's huge. I can relate um, to that. Another thing that I found interesting about your list of four things is that it did not include work. <laughs> I've never thought of that. Yeah. So it's interesting. Work does fall in there because it's a way I provide for my family, but really it's a, it's a method of provision. It's not a priority. It's just, it's a means to fill that family bucket. I, I didn't talk about this in the book, I don't believe, but there are four things, right? God, health, family, and Joe. And when I first started doing this, I create, I would draw a brick in my journal and I would write those four things around it. And I asked myself, I challenged myself. It's like, what if it was a brick? And by doing one of these things every day, I was laying a brick down. What if I did this a million times? What could I build with all of those bricks? So then I began to think, you know, I began to like, not really see a vision for my future, but kind of know what direction I wanted to go. And, you know, when you're building a house, you want to have plans. So by, by focusing on those really important areas of my life, I was essentially building a new me, a strong me, a me with foundation, things that really mattered to me. And because it hasn't changed, like it's a, it's a solid part of who I am. And just the vision of, you know, I've probably done thousands and thousands of those lists in my journal. I just think, you know, I've really come a long way in my faith and my love for my family and my self-care and my mental and emotional health just by doing, you know, one thing a day, whatever that may be. That actually almost made me cry. That is so beautiful and a really great way to describe it. I am curious too about your relationship with God. Have you ever felt an absence of God or? Yeah, more often than not, I would say. I was just talking to somebody about, there's a guy who wrote, a big chunk of the Bible, David, you know, he's the second king of Israel. That, that's a historical fact. But, you know, the, some of the other things that, about him is like he, the mountain, he would complain about God's absence in the book of Psalms, in the Bible. But much of the Old Testament, you'll find some of the key figures complaining about the absence of God and why he wasn't there for them. I don't understand that. And it makes me really angry sometimes. And then, and then he shows up and he does something to affirm his love for me and, and, and to know, to remind me that he's there. Of course, I could be completely wrong and insane. And I could be completely wrong about this idea. And it's maybe karma or, you know, the universe, you know, I'm just trying to make the next best decision. And, you know, the more and more I go on this faith journey, you know, I'm not trying to judge anybody else and say somebody part of Islam is wrong. I just know I'm doing the best with what I have and what I know. One of the greatest things that Jesus says and one of the greatest commandments is to says, love your neighbor as yourself. And for me, I use that as a standard for how I love my neighbor. I can only love my neighbor, my neighbor as much as I love and take care of myself. And for my friend, Nathan, who passed away, he took his life. He, he kept on pouring himself out completely to other people that were struggling. He, he would show up at their house. He had eight kids and he would be there for anybody at any time of the day. And he emptied himself to the point where there was just nothing left for him in that struggle where he was thirsty and his cup was dry. And, and you do a lot of things that are irrational and, and are not good choices in, in situations like that where, you're, where you don't have resources. So many people struggle with that, especially parents, especially yeah. parents. It's so easy for parents to do that. We blame ourselves for the struggles of our children. Let me put it to you this way. I read a book once that, this, that, that, that talked about the two polars of parenting. When we react to kids and their struggle, we have two responses and we kind of fall in, in the line between there. It's, there's, we respond with truth in that you have to pay the price for what you did. If you did something wrong, if you screwed up or you won something, the consequences are natural. 
But then there's grace on the other side, the other polar, where you do something and out of an act of love and out of it, before you have an opportunity to learn something, I am going to remove that responsibility or help you with that responsibility or the, the result of your actions so that you don't suffer completely at that. And I feel like parents are always operating between this place of, do I be hard or do I be gracious? And one thing I found is whenever I'm operating in that spectrum between there, that's how I know when I'm struggling between it, like a tug of war, that I'm loving my children. That whole area between grace and truth is love. If you go too far one way, then you're authoritarian. If you go too far the other way, then you're just happy-go-lucky. You're trying to be your kid's friend, you know? A pushover. Like you don't have to, yeah, a pushover. But in that middle where you wrestle is where you're loving your children. And, and for me, it's that whole idea of being on an airplane, you know, it, when you, if something's happening and the oxygen masks come down, you, you take care of yourself first, because if you don't get that, then you and your child are both going to s- struggle. At least how, how I know to operate as a, as a husband and a father, the, the best way I could demonstrate good life skills and how to treat people is how I treat my wife and how I treat myself. If I don't treat myself well, then a demonstration to the kids is, well, I don't really matter. I don't have to be on time to places. I don't have to work hard. And how I treat my wife, you know, do I treat her like an equal or do I, do I lord myself over her? You know, how do we treat people that are different than us? It's, it's, it's this never ending learning cycle for me. And I think my kids get it. Has your wife made you a better person? My wife is hard. <laughs> she is a pistol. She gets angry when I get depressed. And I would in no way be where I am without her. She is perfectly broken as I am. And we have struggled and wrestled through this together. And there is no way that I would be who I am today without her. You know, it's been this constant, I think about life like a dance. It's been this dance where we have gone this journey together. Her benefits, the things that are amazing about her and her struggles, all of that has made me a better person. Because in her struggles, like selfishness and irrationality, it gives me an opportunity to practice assertiveness where I need to grow. You know, I'm not a very assertive person, but in that situation, I pick up my little practice sheets from my therapist and say, this is how I need to respond to somebody that's being confrontational or irrational. So all of it, like I, I, I'm a firm believer that God doesn't waste anything. If I could tell you more about my police story, there, there's a lot to that that just blew me away in the last few months. I would love um, it. Tell me. Yeah. I graduated from Flint Police Academy, 1197. I was a new husband. Uh, I got hired by a little town in East Michigan called Flushing Township. Wasn't uh, where I had to buy my gun. I had, to, I had to buy my holster. It was $7 an hour. It was a little, I say podunk town. I don't mean that insultingly. It's just a really small place. And before I started earning a paycheck and getting sworn in, uh, this city, Grand Rapids called. Like, hey, Joe passed his interviews. We want to have him come for another interview. Um, it's the second largest city in, in Michigan. So they end up hiring me. They hired 11 people out of the 2,000 that applied. I was the only one that was not already an officer. And I got here and it was a month long program being initiated into the police department. The first three weeks were, were training, were how we were learning how to do things the Grand Rapids way. You know, you could come out of the police academy and they have their own you know, procedures. And then at the end of the three weeks, I was sworn in. And then after five days, I quit. <laughs> I was a police officer for five days. I was awful at it. I was a horrible police officer. I was scared. I was weak. I didn't know how to, I didn't have any street smarts. I just love people and people are going to take advantage of that. 
you got to have some thick skin and boundaries that uh, that I didn't have at the time, at least. That's a very embarrassing story for me to tell. To say, oh, I was, you know, I, you tell somebody the police officer, like, oh, how long were you a police officer? You know, how was it? A, a week. And then they just kind of stare at you. You know, it wasn't about three months ago that NAMI came to me, National Alliance of Mental Illness, and said, we have an opportunity for you to talk to a police academy because you're on the road to recovery with mental illness. Well, they didn't know that I had had this experience. And when I walked in the police academy, they didn't know I had this experience. So there's a lot of things that I learned through my education, through going through all the things I went through that still relate to law enforcement today. I was able to put a picture of, of me on my, on my swearing in day with I was holding my little baby, my wife and my badge, my gun and all that. And it, it kind of changed the perspective of who was talking to them. There's a guy that gets it at some level. And I never thought that a very painful place in my life would ever serve a purpose other than just causing me more pain. But again, I don't think God wastes anything. And in that, in that situation, 20 some years later, I'm using it now to help officers in West Michigan, you know, recruits at the police academy. The interesting thing about that one experience is I put it out on Facebook to see if people would be willing to sponsor books for the cadets or the recruits. And I needed 600 and some dollars to give a book to every recruit and, and teacher. And I raised like 850 in two hours. So I was able, when I walked in there, I walked in with a box of books and handed everyone a book, had everyone a bracelet, had, you know, and, and all the stories I shared with them, like, hey, there's more in this book than, than what I'm sharing. I gave them to the teachers. Man, the, the response was, was wonderful. It was just, I was blown away by how well, how great their response was. And they were blown away by me. What a powerful story, especially talking about changing the perspective of the audience by having that picture. Isn't that incredible? It was a surprise for everybody except the guy running the event, all the teachers that were there. It was a two or three day mental health training seminar thing. And I was the last speaker. I was the keynote speaker. And none of them had an idea who they were getting. So that was kind of cool. I can't tell you the number of times where I've been blown away, where I, I, I feel like God has done amazing things, where I just get on my knees and I, and I just, it's all him. I know I'm on the right path because not because it's easy or because every day things go my way. That's what I'm talking about, but, but, but because of these little wins that I can see that are changing one life at a time. And there are some stories from different officers there that, that are pretty cool, but it's time limiting. You want to yeah. share one of them? Let's, we'll just say he's high up in the academy. He's not a student. He's a instructor and he had been in the military. He had a service pet with him. And he walked up to me in tears, just having that vulnerability to get up there and say all the things I did and, and being willing to be embarrassed for the benefit of other people. Because it was really uncomfortable. <laughs> and I leaned into that uncomfortable. Like, I really leaned into it. I'm like, yeah, it was bad. Like, I do well. And, and uh, you know, when he walked up to me after the, the walk, he held out his hands to me. And in his hand, he had this really awesome coin. It was a a very special coin that had the police academy logo on it and it's just like you know you're one of us now he said and and i'm still learning about his story and his struggle in the military but i know it's pretty difficult and him and i have talked a few times now since then over email and he's one of the guys that's really pushing to get me to help train these officers from the 90 departments here in west michigan amazing how can my audience support you I'm not so concerned about your audience supporting me. What I would like your audience to do is just to consider who in their life is missing, who in their life haven't you heard from in a while and check in on them. 
it doesn't matter if you think that they have it all together, if they always seem happy with you with them. Uh, Robin Williams was a great guy that always seemed happy. You do not know most often the struggle that a person has and how, how lonely they feel. So to answer your question, don't do anything for me. I love the people that you have, that you are fortunate enough to have in your community. That would be my number one desire. If you want to learn some of the things I'm talking about, like one of the hardest things for me, one of the hardest chapters in writing my book was how to learn to love myself or enjoy myself. Like if, if that's something you're interested in, yeah, you can find my book I'm on Amazon. You know, I'm paying off all the money that went into that. And that would certainly be great. You know, again, it's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's something that I never intended to write. They're just things that I needed to do so, to survive day by day. And was very fortunate enough to have people in my life to help guide me to be able to put it on paper. And I hope it'll make you laugh. I hope it makes you cry. And I hope you're able to pass it on. The book is Broken Like Me, an insider's toolkit for mending broken people. Yeah, that's the second thing. You know, it's a great example of how you can share your story of vulnerability. That was such a beautiful thing to say, like check in with people, because that is really true. Like who are you overdue to do that with? Yeah, especially elderly people. The rate of depression is much higher and suicide attempts are much higher in the elderly. So please reach out to the elderly people in your life now, as soon as this is over, after you give this a five-star rating, go and check on the elderly. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? I took a certain amount of financial risk writing a book. And my heart has always been to love and help people. But there is always this push from society, from my banker to all the people that want me to pay bills to make more money. And how do I find the balance between loving people? Because when it comes about the money, then that's a whole nother beast. I feel like I had the most success when I just love people for, for loving sake. Like, I do need to make some money. How do you not sell your soul to the great and mighty dollar and still love people and still try to keep something like this going? It's something I I just talked to my therapist about. Actually, I was in therapy about an hour ago. So if you go to my Instagram, you'll see I posted about going into therapy. More paid speaking engagements, but I'm going to get my daddy's response. Excellent. I can't wait to hear it. And I actually have an intern. I'm going to give her a shout out that used to work for me. And now she works for NAMI. So she's going to love this episode. And I would be happy to actually introduce you because maybe you could speak for them. Yeah, totally. Like I think what we need more, you know, I run Broken People. We need more collaboration between these these people that are all wanting to do the same thing and save Mm -hmm. people's lives and and bring meaning to to hurting people. All right. Thank you. Have a beautiful night. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Very interesting meeting you've had with Joseph. A lot of ironies, too. He tells you that he's studying to be a policeman. He found out that it's a scary job. It's a tough job. It's a type of job where you're an enforcer. And we even know that some policemen, just like if you give someone authority in your factory and you promote them from within, It's almost like that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde syndrome, where all of a sudden it goes to their head. You know, it's like blowing up on their thumb where you're uh, now you think you're like a bigger or better than someone else or tougher than someone else. He found out that he really loves people and he doesn't want to order people around. He wants to be able to work with people and has some issues of, of finding himself and his past. And he doesn't want to be a tough guy. 
He wants to be someone who loves and understands people and where he can help people like himself that uh, are unsure of the way to go. And uh, what I also liked is that he recognizes that taking small positive steps, writing them down, trying to accomplish a little something is better than nothing. Trying to be connected with God and trying to also improve your wisdom rating. Is that what your father is trying to do here as well? I get a thrill out of making money also, but it's really the little wins. It's really participating. It's learning to be professional, knowing that you can make your mark in a positive way. And I also enjoy helping people and doing things for others more than I want to do for myself. However, very interesting concept comes up is that still you have to be happy with yourself. You have to be happy with your own desires and wants and do the best that you can to satisfy them if you want to be a good example of what those desires mean to others. It's a job that never ends. We all have our ups and downs in life, and some people are able to cope and pivot better than others. So it isn't the destiny for everyone when it comes to speed of recognizing the changes that that you have to make in your life as you are from a young man or woman to later years, that there's a story and experiences that you gain all along the way. And we do our very best to improve our story and to participate in our story and to love our story and try to see it through the best that we can. I love the tools that he's created to try to help others. Well, isn't it funny how after in one definition of not making it as a policeman, he's now determined to really help police understand people with emotional problems, people that can get themselves in trouble and learn how to deal with them better, where you don't have this massive conflict between the authority of police and the courts and regular people that you meet on the street or that are having trouble putting their life together. And where the wake-up call is that if we don't do things like that, people can get, get depressed and be put in a hard spot where they feel like there's, where they're drained and there's no answer. And a lot of these people end up killing themselves because they get into such a dark corner or a dark place or are falling through this dark hole and they don't know how to stop falling. I think that that's just terrible, terrible place to be in. And we've got to figure out a way when if we just help a few people climb out of that. He's trying to, you're right, come up with tools and mechanisms and, and uses his experience because of his own issues and trying very hard to demonstrate that he's able to help himself and is now trying to use that benefit to help other people. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.